Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now for a special edition of the New Statesman podcast, Stephen and I were joined by Andrew O'Hagan, writer of the LRB and of several books. Before we get to that, though, just one quick reminder that Stephen and I are speaking at the King's Place Politics Festival at the weekend on Sunday at 4pm if we haven't boiled to death by then. Uh, and tickets for that are still available. Just have a Google. Hello, we're joined today by writer and journalist Andrea Hagen, who has a new book out which is called The Secret Life, which is based on three essays he originally wrote for the London Review of Books. The first is about his time as a ghostwriter for Julian Assange, whom will be familiar to listeners of this podcast. The second is about creating a fake identity for a man who died, leaving few traces. And the third is about a man who may or may not be Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for joining it's us. It's good to be here. Well, actually, the day you've joined us today, Julian Assange has both announced and cancelled an appearance from his bal- from his Vita balcony. So um, it's a very fitting day for you to be here. It's very often the way he seems to have a sort of eccentric relationship with his own diary. Whether he's going to appear on the uh, balcony or not is something that keeps journalists um, busy, I think. I know. It's a slight law of diminishing returns, though. There's just going to essentially, at the end, there'll be like one cat sitting outside. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the book, first of all, and about how what links these three stories. I mean, they are all stories in some ways about identity and about, about ghosting and about disappearance. What, what were the kind of kernels of them that attracted you to these stories? I think even at the early stages, um, I knew that they might come together. I hoped that they would, because they seemed to me to draw on quite a similar energy from the times that we're living through, which is to do with uh, a question about what's happening to selfhood, I would say, in the, in the age of the internet. The old-fashioned sense, at least old-fashioned to me, part of my childhood was about trying to move steadily towards a sense of self that might be described as stable, at least identifiable, knowable, to yourself perhaps with any luck, and certainly to the people around you. Um, that You'd have an identity that was just establishable. And However you changed, your core reality, to use a controversial word today, would remain there. Um, I just don't think that's the same now. Um, I speak as a novelist too, and we've always taken it for granted as novelists that the the interior life um, and the shifts in internal life are are the stuff of, of, of dramatic fiction. You know, changes and modulations in consciousness and selfhood are what we're all about, whether you're Henry James or Kafka. It's, is a common thread between them. Um, but now I think that we, should, we shouldn't allow ourselves to rely too much on that notion of stability. I think what uh, young people are often doing, I say this as a father of a 13-year-old who's addicted to some of these um, uh, new opportunities that exist for 
not only self-invention, but self-manipulation and self-cancelling, all of which can happen on the net now. And I've watched it closely for quite a long time, and I saw it emerge in each of these stories in relation to one individual. Now, I don't think any of these individuals are particularly typical of the age. I mean, I don't think Assange is any more typical of the age than... You know, uh, Charles Foster Kane is typical of the age of newspapers. I mean, he's a self-confection and he's atypical, in fact. But nevertheless, the three individuals in this book, I would argue, uh, they, they represent something amongst themselves. I mean, together they begin to describe a sort of new territory, I think. I think that's one of the things that comes across most strongly to me is that you don't have... Um, I mean, I've been banging on about this for a long time, but this idea where you move from geographical communities primarily to kind of interest-based communities. And one of the things that changes is you don't have people to vouch for you anymore. You know, you're not the, the bank manager or, you know, the person at the, the Skittles club. It becomes much harder to tell online who everybody, you know, that famous New Yorker cartoon about online, no one knows if I'm a, a dog. And that's quite liberating, but it's also incredibly destabilizing. I think the thing that really came across most strongly in the last, the second of the two stories here and the third one too is you're kind of okay with the writer about not tying everything up with a neat little bow and you kind of have to be to write about the internet. I think, uh, to be honest, Helen, that's really what allowed me to write these stories. I mean, I don't, I'm not particularly techy. Uh, I, I didn't, at least before setting out to write these stories, I had no particular inroads into the rather sort of narcissistic and baroque world of computer hacking and so on, or computer intelligence. It wasn't a world of mine very naturally, but the one thing I had is the thing you name, which is, I wouldn't call it an ability, I'd call it a kind of predisposition uh, to not want to tie everything up, to leave openness to do its magic. I think some writers are just like that, whether in journalism or in fiction, quite interested in the open-ended, in the dualistic, in the two-minded, in things neither being one thing or the other. I've always been interested in that. I mean, my first book was called The Missing, and it wasn't an accident that I chose that title and I followed those stories of missing persons who both existed and didn't exist, in a sense. It was a very different political culture then, and we can talk about changes in that, but certainly it seemed to me that I had the right kind of madness for these people, I put it that way. Yeah, because everybody in that Nakamoto story is kind of driven mad by the just, you know, it becomes the ultimate MacGuffin, right? That everybody yes. just feels if only they can find this out, then suddenly they'll understand something really profound and that reminds me you know that that intense desire to find out who Eleanor Ferrante really was as if that somehow will unlock you'll know more about the novels because you know she's this you know Italian woman I don't know why people get so hung up on that idea of closure I think it's a hysterical reaction now a, a, a decade or more into this sense of the internet being so central in our lives we're now getting a sort of hysteria around the place about people wanting almost to get back to old-fashioned, I know who you are, I know who you are, and I know who you are. I know your birth certificate, I know your parents, I know something about your DNA, and I can identify you. This hysteria about needing to identify people suddenly, because I think there's a fear, almost a primal fear now, in our societies that we're going to become so liquid that we don't know how to be a society. You mentioned before, I think absolutely rightly, that it's not geographically based in the way that it was. Therefore, what is it? Is it ideological? Um, is it gender-based? If we're living in a non-binary world in the future, and I increasingly hope we do, are we liquid to the extent that we don't actually, we don't actually have those anchors that hold us down? And for some people, that's called liberation, but other people, for others, it's called pure confusion, I think. Most of revolutionary trend, trends do tend to give 
give way to a counter-revolution. You know, the Reformation, of course, had a period of Catholic revival and, and sort of, yeah, I think it was interesting to use the word Baroque, then obviously that was partly about the Catholic Church reasserting itself and its cultural and do you think there will be a similar kind of identity counter-revolution to more sort of fixed forms of identity? I think it's fascinating. I mean, I've never heard it put so straightforwardly, but yes is the answer from my perspective. I'm just one voice in this, of course, but having spent the best part of six years around this kind of miasma, I don't use that word as negatively as it might be used by others. I'm interested in the miasma. I'm interested in, as it were, uh, the identityless generation if it comes about. Um, but I do think, in answer to your question, that there's already a revival, and in some quarters quite a right-wing revival, wanting community and nationalism and identity politics to be very clear. They want to know exactly who everybody is in the village. There's a danger in that. There's a fascistic tendency in that, in fact, as we know from history, that wanting to know who, not only who your neighbours are, but wanting to know everything there is to know about them. Well, that's a, that's a worry that's come with the technology and come with our circumstances. The relationship between MI5 and the CIA, uh, especially recently over this business of fake off, to explain to listeners very briefly, uh, we have brands of commercially available televisions now, uh, many of them uh, made by Samsung, which have a device in them which when you switch them off, they go into a, a condition called fake off. They're still collecting data, and it was the intention of both the British and the American uh, secret services to collect that data. It's fascinating. I saw a picture of Mark Zuckerberg not long ago, and you know he's got you know, this guy who's Mr. Radical Openness, you know, I live my life in public, I'm going to do status updates about my dog and my wife and stuff like that. And he's got tape over his webcam and tape over his microphone on his laptop because he knows that it is really incredibly simple to hack those things. As I do now, I mean, I wouldn't dream of, you know, sitting in front of a laptop now with a camera staring me in the face. Not that there's anything particularly interesting to look at in my study, I wish there was, but even my physog being looked at for uh, the five or six hours of hard rictus face that it <laughs> takes to get a paragraph out of me uh, would be too much. But it's true. I mean, privacy is almost a suspect category now in a way that it never was. That was one of the subjects for me. I mean, Zuckerberg, um, in the early days of Facebook, expected people to, to announce their sexual persuasion, as it used to be called, thinking, well, if you don't want to reveal that, then it's because you're underhanded about it. But what if you just like your privacy? Yeah, and he had real trouble in the early days, Facebook did, about the idea that people might get divorced or that they might die, right? Yes. That you might have life events might happen that you wouldn't want to say X is no longer married to Y and it kind of pops up in everyone's newsfeed. I mean, Zuckerberg, uh, brilliant as he was, has always, uh, I mean, up until now anyway, expressed what I think of as a young man's vision of freedom and with the emphasis on man and young. You know, that it's not freedom as all of us would understand it. Gawker had the same attitude, I mean... They got excited every time there was an infringement of privacy. They thought privacy was a kind of ideological block in our society. It should be knocked out of the way. But um, that can lead to another place where everybody's being watched all the time. And any personal interaction, including the interaction between us in this room, making a recording together, could be deemed suspect by somebody. 
You know, that's that's how you can go if you go too far into the let's know what everybody's doing all the time arena. What I like about podcasts is you sort of forget that anyone's ever going to listen to them. <laughs> like you just think, well, I'll get away with that. I said that on the, on the podcast. But also I do think that as a form, they're a really interesting thing because they are anti-viral, right? It's really hard to discover a podcast. It kind of happens in its own um, little space. It's actually quite hard to pick it up and kind of memeify it and pass bits of it on, which is a kind of a really refreshing thing. I mean, you I talk think it's and- wonderful that it makes, it actually might be, possible to imagine a future where all real conversation happens by podcast because every other kind especially if it's happening in a sitting room with a television on fake off isn't really private at all I mean this is this is at least declared broadcasting yeah the thing you mentioned there about the idea about the backlash I think is awesome because do you not think as well there might be did you not find this exhausting because one thing is I've written a bit about internet trolls and what becomes really exhausting is people leading you in a dance of Am I, is this just my persona? Am I maybe? I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm telling you this, but am I telling you this? And, and, and do, you, do you thrive on that? Or did you sometimes just think, just tell me what you're thinking? It's so interesting that because, you know, it's the way, the way certainly as you describe it, it's the way in which this kind of work is most like writing fiction. Because you never really know what the characters in the book that you're writing are saying to you. I mean, you might pretend you do, and you might, given that you invented them and gave them a face and a name and a backstory and a relation, series of relationships, you're supposed to be some omniscient person, right? But actually, you're not. Not in my experience. You're waiting for the characters to have free will. And they, they do begin to they exert it on, on you as you try to push them around the page. It becomes bad writing if you push them too hard. They've got to have some independent sort of scope in your, in your mind. Um, and I felt, in journalistic terms, these people were like that. They were always throwing roadblocks in front of me. They were always being inconsistent. And they were living a kind of pretend life very often. There was a whole day when uh, Julian Assange pretended, very clearly, was a grown man pretending to find zip drives that he, uh, he said material was on, that he'd worked on for the book. It was absolutely obvious to anybody that he had never done any work for the book and that these zip drives simply didn't exist. It told me a lot about his character and it told me a lot about the desperate circumstances he found himself in. I put it into the story I eventually wrote much, much later. But it was ex- an example for me of how the unpredictable, the uh, obfuscating nature of some of these characters didn't put me off as a writer, it rather hooked me, in fact, in the way that sometimes friends can be more intriguing to you for not letting themselves quite go. It was a bit like that. Yeah, I've just finished reading um, Selfie by Will Storr, which covers some of these issues as well about the idea of conceptions of the self. And one of the things that he brings out as well is the idea of a narcissistic culture and about people being unhappy because exactly like Assange in that uh, example, they're all about Craig Wright who does this thing of saying, hey everybody, I'm Satoshi Nakamoto and here's my proof. And then the proof turns out to be incredibly easily debunked and he's kind of trapped in this kind of state of wanting, both wanting and not wanting to be it. But about people kind of creating a kind of carapace for themselves, which they then find it's like a prison you know they feel that they have to kind of live up even though they can tell that everybody's seeing through it which I think is a fascinating thing I remember that wonderful thing of Orwell's about celebrity being a mask Mm, that eats into the face and I think that whether it was celebrity or not trying to step out of the shadow into some sort of recognized or some renown you know Craig Wright wanted all that I mean he courted all that he brought me in in order to help him do that um, as did the money guys behind him. Everybody was fully responding his wish to do it, as with Assange, you know, signing giant multi-million dollar book deals to write a book that actually he didn't want to write. 
These guys were courting celebrity. They then found that the mask that they actually had on was incredibly difficult to remove. Obviously, you're a novelist as well as a, a journalist. And as you say, the kind of struggles of the interior life are, I think, probably key to most novels we care to name. Do you think the kind of way that we create identities for ourselves online as that becomes more mainstream will fundamentally change the kind of themes of the novel? I guess I'm thinking about kind of, you know, sort of Pride and Prejudice, the first Are you also thinking about English how many novel. bad novels there have been written about the internet? Well, I think the interesting thing is I feel like no one has written a great novel about the internet. The only two I think they've tried probably are Dave Eggers' is The Circle yes. and then the latest Jonathan Franzen that's got yeah. a Julian Assange-like character Both in it, right? of which I kind of thought Interesting failed. failures. Yeah. I spoke to Jonathan Franzen about that book. I mean, he, he, he'd he read the uh, account I gave of my time with Assange over those months and we spoke about it. He felt, I think, in some ways that... Assange was a figure on the cusp between the old way of thinking about character and the new way. And maybe that's one of the things the novel doesn't quite resolve. But I think in response to your question, it is the case that the novel has yet to produce, I mean, we've yet to have that absolutely all guns blazing, all whistles and bells. You know, a writer at the top of their form writing beautifully and deathlessly something that's set right within the centre of the internet. I think it's, uh, it's early days for that. In a way, though, um, I'm quite confident. And there was a moment, it's hard to believe now, I suppose, but there was a moment when sex hadn't really happened in the novel. <laughs> Do you remember? I mean, it's before any of us, I'm happy to say, were born. But, you know, <laughs> before Henry Miller or, or even Philip Roth, or, I mean, D.H. Lawrence, I mean, there, there was sex in the sense that it was off the page, and but its implications were everywhere. I mean, there's sex in Henry James, but... Um, or George Eliot. Yeah, but I guess Fanny Hill, yeah, no one managed to do sort of erotic fiction and remember to make it interesting fiction as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was always a big conundrum, how do you do sex, proper sex, where people get sweaty and people get regretful and people sort of, some people are happy and some people are not, sometimes the people who are having sex together, you know, that kind of sex. And people said it will never really make it into the novel, it's too, it will destroy the novel. And I still wonder if it's properly made it into the novel. I mean, it's, there's, there's awards for writing badly about sex, although I've noticed there aren't awards for bad, writing badly about sort of shopping or sleeping. Um, yeah, and the internet is? is the same thing, because the internet, again, is something that you... Well, I was going to say, this makes a terrible sound. I was going to say the internet is something that you do on your own, but which I was thinking more about Philip Roth and masturbation, really, <laughs> right, rather than sex, obviously. You did get that um, onto the page right now. <laughs> I mean. But yeah, but the internet is something that's kind of private weirdly it's a kind of it's a it's a sort of communion between you and uh, and a sort of nameless place it actually i think that's one of the reasons that maybe it's hard for the novel to to deal with it is that actually trying to kind of recreate that that str- and the strange kind of asynchronicity of communication as well the way that on whatsapp you leave a message yes. and someone picks it up it will need to be a very different novel i mean it w- in that sense it could revolutionize the novel it will need the imagination i think of a new generation i don't think anybody as old as i am that's to say somebody in the late 40s would really know how to get a away from the eye contact obsession that somebody with my kind of background or credentials would have. I want to see people's face ultimately. I mean, these stories I've written about the internet are based all on me looking into the eyes of somebody who might be at the centre of a notion of selfhood falling apart, but there is a flesh and blood person in front of me. And the flesh and blood element's always, if you like, at stake for me in these stories, even with the middle story, which is about a boy who was invented by me uh, based on a, a, a guy who died in the 1980, um, listeners may remember that um, the Metropolitan Police 
in London were doing this very thing for years. It was their way of infiltrating left-wing groups was to steal the names um, of dead children from gravestones and build what they called a legend around them. And uh, um, there's been things in the magazine about this over the years, but certainly it had taken on a form that had never really been properly described because it was an ethical crime that had to be, in a sense, reproduced by an author who was willing to be ethically criminal. Yes, I noticed some of the reviews said five stars for the writing, but zero stars for the ethics. Which yeah. was sort of, well, yeah, but you know, that is kind of writing. But actually, I, w- I wanted to ask you actually specifically about that type of review. How does that, some particularly of that more difficult second essay, make you feel? Um... Well, you know, I grew up believing that writers are actuality seekers. They go out there, um, you know, and they come back with the moral news. And if the moral news is bad, they still bring it. You know, you're a correspondent in a sense. Uh, and if you're a war correspondent, you don't come back from the front saying, you know what, not so nice. I think we'll just leave that one. Then we'll just leave Afghanistan because, you know, it's pretty horrible and it's actually politically so dodgy. And, you know, that's not your job. Your job is to come back with everything. And I think that's true um, of the society we live in. I, I always felt that what we needed more of in British journalism was foreign correspondents in our own country. We needed to send more people to, as it were, Newcastle or blocks of flats in West London and really describe the reality of what's going on there and how people are being treated there and how lives are being underestimated or defiled or uh, or made marginal. So that's foreign correspondence in your own country, in a sense. The way it makes me feel if the story requires you to go in at a level which is mixing with the evil, you know, reproducing the bad element on the page and in the reporting, well, that's to me is is one of your responsibilities. I mean, there will, there will be squeamish people, including some squeamish reviewers who say, well, a journalist should be a moral exemplar and that they should choose to lead morally. I've never thought of writers in that way. Um, I thought one of the most extraordinary things I've read this year is um, Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree. I know I'm a bit behind the curve on this, which is about parents whose children have identities that are different from theirs. So um, she, he talks to the ch- children of you know, survivors of the Rwandan genocide, for example. And the parents of the Columbine massacre. Yeah, yeah and, and one of the ones he talks to is parents of children with autism. And there's a line in there which is extraordinary, from which is that lots of um, these kids, as they grow up and they go through puberty, they become sexually confused. And one of the couples has a son who is sexually aroused by nostrils. And he says, you know, sometimes my son just looks up my nostrils and starts masturbating. And you know what? Sometimes I'm so tired that I let him. Mm. And I remember that it's just been an incredibly shocking thing to write. And I think if I'd been writing that story, I would have thought, should I put this in? You know, does, did that dad really mean to tell me that? Should I protect him? But equally well, it's just, it belonged in there because it's so true, right? It's something that you instantly recognise that, yes, actually you can totally see why people, you know, and, and the honesty of that is, is extraordinary, what you should be aiming for in journalism. I think so, absolutely, 100%. You know, if you, there were people who used to say to Seymour Harsh at the time of my life, don't put that in. In fact, don't put it in, don't put any of it in, because it, in some senses, endangers our national security, it hands it to the enemy, it gives the ideological victory to our opponents, um, it's frightening, it will keep people up at night. I mean, there are a thousand reasons why not to publish, but there are always one or two absolutely sterling reasons to ignore that and go ahead and publish, and that is that it's happening in the world and it has, as it were, moral dimension that's going to affect all of our lives, so a writer should get in there and do it. Whether they get brownie points for being the most moral person in the class or not, well, that's 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 for the birds as far as I'm concerned. But that must be easier for you because you're not, as far as I can see, ironically, very much on the internet. No, I'm not. 
I've never been. In fact, I've never uh, had passionate relationship with social media of any kind. That's not to say I oppose it in any way. I mean, I think that I oppose the attempt to uh, mistake it for literature. I mean, 140 characters you can do quite a lot with, but it's not Tolstoy. It's not War and Peace, that's to say. Neither does it pretend to be in most cases, so fair enough, you know. But I sometimes worry that um, people who question the nature of social media and what it's doing to our, our relationships and our sense of society are thought to be these sort of you know, conservatives who hate the idea of the technology. I love the idea of the technology. Some of these stories I've written, not only could they not have been written because the subjects were in that world, but also um, the internet was enormously helpful to me in in dealing with these people. We were on the net all the time. Um, there was never a moment, you know, when I was with Assange in that house in Norfolk when we went all online and dealing with you know, his capacity to make a difference on there. Yeah, I think it's the other way around. I think, you know, I, I'm on Twitter, but I kind of hate myself on Twitter, right? Mm. I think actually if I if I wasn't on it, I'd probably have a better relationship with it because I'd see it from the outside rather than seeing it like something that I'm mildly addicted to and I, I wish that I wasn't. It's quite a defensive world, the, the, the world of tweeting, because people, you know, both, as you say, you, you describe it honestly, you know, the sort of loving and loathing aspect of it, but a lot of people who are on it quite dedicatedly sort of are in a constant state of rage against people who aren't, as if the people who aren't are trying to sort of uh, forge a private life that is bogus and unearned and undeserved. And that's where I balance my interest in a way. I'm interested in this uh, growing sense that privacy is a form of underhandedness. And I think the consequences of that could be massive, massive especially politically. I think it, it, de- it definitely reinforces the status quo. There was a good book review we had a while ago that talked about noise and about silence and saying, you know, silence is a class issue, right? Because if you are rich, you can buy yourself a house that is away from everyone else. You can soundproof yeah. your windows. You know, you have a front door. If you're poor and you live on an estate, you have people banging past your door all the night. And actually something as simple as that. And I think privacy is the same. You can buy yourself an awful lot of privacy You're absolutely money. right about that, by the way. And, you know, less than 100 years ago, it was Virginia Woolf's great argument about women was a room of your own a room of one's own it was about not being trapped inside this machine uh, where everybody else made a noise and had claims on you so they thought you know a room of one's own is a place where you could go and close the door and that closing the door whether it's to achieve the silence or just as it were the self-empowerment that comes with having your furniture arranged as you want it and walking in whatever style or direction you want to in your room I think it's a bit like that with the net, you know, it's, it's very good for people who want to display themselves, but I'm interested in people who are less uh, ample when it comes to wanting to display. Um, I quite like the things that go on one-to-one. Um, I'm rather protective of them. And just as we're running out of time, one last thing. Where is the most fascinating place on the internet to you? Oh, the most f- fascinating place um, on the internet to me um, is Instagram, because my daughter is a great fan of it and has made me a great fan of it and so I find myself you know when I probably should be sort of you know attacking some piece of work the thumb goes out and sort of gently sort of finds its way to you know see what she's posting now so for sentimental reasons mainly it's my favorite place on the net it's a gentler place isn't it it's a place of dogs and breakfasts and that's dogs and breakfasts and people having a life that you otherwise wouldn't see and for those of us who never use the phone enough and don't see your friends enough it's just a lovely way it's an actual addition to life. It's a lovely way of having a life in correspondence with other people constantly without having to have them right there in front of you. Thank you very much for joining us. The book is The Secret Life and it is out now.
This special edition of the New Statesman podcast was brought to you by me, Helen Lewis. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And my co-host, Stephen Bush. It was produced and mixed by a hero, India Book, who sits and listens to us waffle on all of the time, for which we thank her. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.